What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful businesses. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Andy Cook, one of the two co-founders of a company called Tetra. Andy, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Cortland. Tetra is wiki software that's made to help teams share knowledge. Can you explain a little bit about what that means and why people want what you're building? For sure. Um, So it's a knowledge sharing system for growing teams. Uh, What that means is we allow you to take all of the scattered documents, uh, emails, chat logs, GitHub issues, whatever you have, and aggregate it all into one central repository. And then we make that easily accessible from your chat tool, primarily Slack, which is what most of our customers use. Uh, And the idea is that uh, Tetra makes it really easy to onboard new team members and answer repetitive questions. Uh, And the reason why that's important is more and more uh, as knowledge workers uh, become more prevalent in the workforce, most of the value is around getting people ramped up quickly and getting them aligned with the mission as fast as possible. So the faster and sooner you can do that with new people that you hire, like literally the more progress and more money you're going to make in the long run. Your co-founder Nelson actually came onto the Indiacus website about a year ago and did a written interview where he talked about Tetra. And at that point, you guys were doing just over $23,000 a month in revenue. Where are you guys at now? We're at uh, 40K MRR in revenue. That's awesome. How's the field have sort of almost doubled in the last year? Uh, feels great. It was a tumultuous year uh, with a lot of struggles and took a lot of discipline to get through it. But now that we're in uh, clearer pastures, I'm, I'm feeling good and I'm excited about getting to 500K ARR and then a million and beyond. Yeah, that's. Uh, I want to dive into what exactly made this a tumultuous year and uh, what sort of struggles you had to deal with. But uh, let's start on the high note, you know, to begin with. I think where you guys are being sort of an independently operated company where you're doing your own thing, you're generating enough revenue to, I assume, be profitable. Are you guys profitable? We're not profitable right now, but we're default alive. So we'll get the goal is to get back to profitability with our current funding. So it looks like pretty likely that you'll do that. How does it feel in general to be sort of living the dream, not working for somebody else and doing your own thing? Uh, it feels great. I mean, before I started Tetra, I was working at a... Um, software company in Boston called Cambridge, technically called HubSpot. And that was a great place to work too. It's one of the best places to work in the country. Um, But the thing I really love about being my own boss and uh, running Tetra is that ultimately uh, the company is a great company to work for or a crappy company to work for by whether or not I make that happen. So my goal is to make Tetra a great place to work for and do right by our customers by building the best products, which is 100% in my control. And I love that. You are one half of the co-founding team of Tetra. You also work with your partner, Nelson. How did the two of you guys meet and decide to work on this business? Uh, So Nelson and I actually met a long, long time ago in seventh grade in middle school. We both grew up in the same hometown. We bonded over skateboarding uh, in seventh grade. Fast forward like 15 years or something like that. My first startup, Rentabilities, was acquired by HubSpot. And Nelson had been working at HubSpot uh, for three years at that point. 
And the management team knew that Nelson and I were friends and they knew that Nelson had a good understanding of how HubSpot worked internally. And I had um, a lot of startup experience around like how to get products out in the world very quickly. And so they teamed the two of us up to build a skunkwork style startup inside of the company. And we got to work alongside each other for two years. Um, so we'd known each other for a long time. We'd been friends for a long time. But, you know, being friends with someone and working side by side on a team with them are two completely different things. So I'm really thankful we got to test the waters of working together on HubSpot's dime instead of, you know, just like jumping into it together and hoping it worked. Yeah. So that sounds like a kind of a dream job situation as well, where you're inside of a company, but you're sort of running a startup and you're working on it with one of your best friends. Let's rewind for a bit and talk about your past history and sort of what drives you. I mean, what led you to become an entrepreneur and why aren't you satisfied just working at a normal desk job for somebody else? I don't know what led me to become an entrepreneur, but thinking back to my early childhood, I've always been really entrepreneurial. You could probably chalk that up to the fact that my dad owned his own small business. He was a landscaper for about 30 years. So, you know, from an early age, it never seemed weird to me to own your own business and be making money by selling things. But I was always trying to make money as a kid. You know, we would like go out and collect bottles and cans uh, to like around town, like literally picking up garbage to trade them in for money. We would start lemonade stands on the street uh, and we would, I had a paper route for years. So yeah, just from like an early age, I just always was trying to make money, probably because I didn't get an allowance. Uh, so it's like you, you, <laughs> you, you could to. only buy candy if you made the money. So yeah, and then just it kind of snowballed from there, um, like as I got into my professional life. And how did that lead to the creation of your first business? So my first company that I started uh, was called Rentabilities. I started it with my older brother. The backstory behind that one is my older brother started... Alex is his name, uh, started to learn how to do web design in high school. And then he taught me how to do website and web design. And we both really liked it. When we were in college, we made a website for one of my dad's vendors that he worked with for his landscaping business, which was actually a rental store. Uh, and the rental store owner, his name was Steve, was like literally on two phones all the time taking orders. So we were like, oh, well, we can build a site where you can take orders online and like hook up your inventory management system to your website. Does that sound good? He was like, yeah. So we ended up doing that um, and selling it to him. And he did like $25,000 of rentals through the site in the first year that it was online. And we were both probably like 18 or 19 at this point. And, you know, being naive, we thought to ourselves like, oh, well, if this works for Steve, this will probably work for other rental store owners too. So we decided to team up, give it a name, um, and then try to sell it to uh, other stores. We ended up getting like 20 or so rental stores to buy it um, like in the first couple of years, which was really cool. Oh, great. So kind of did work the way that you expected. Yeah. And it was funny because like when you don't know what you're doing, you do things that you probably wouldn't do when you do know what you're doing. So like I remember one of the campaigns that I ran was I figured out how to go on Google Maps, which was like kind of new at the time get all of the addresses for the rental stores. And then I went on the business directory listing for the state of Massachusetts and found all the store owners' names. And then I hand wrote them notes. Oh, wow. Like with um, some information about rentabilities and invited them to like a video webinar series that I was doing at the time about how to get 
more exposure for your business online. Because mm. um, these were like, you know, 50 year old store owners who barely could use the internet. And like, we were savvy young uh, college students who like knew how to use the internet. And I think I got back like 10 responses to that, like these handwritten notes, like people literally just like called me or emailed me. And then I would go up and drive out to meet them and like sell them in person as a 19 year old with like my khakis and my polo on. Uh, and that's how we made our first sales. What was your goal at this point? I mean, what did you see this business turning into? I got to be honest, there really wasn't any goal besides make money. This was probably about like 2008 or so. And like at the time, really like the lore of startups hadn't been developed yet. Like people weren't really talking about angel investors and venture capital and like unicorn startups. Like this was the year that Facebook got the like $2 billion offer or whatever from Yahoo and they turned it down and like that was heresy. So it's like a very different world. So our goal is like literally just to build a business and make money and have it sustain us. And it was really nothing more than that. And to learn too, like we're having a ton of fun working together and learning how to do this stuff. So before we started this episode, you told me that this business eventually got acquired by HubSpot. I wonder how you worked out that acquisition and what that process was like for you, because a lot of people listening in have never really heard what it's like to have your company get acquired. So what led to that series of events? I'll give the highlights because uh, there's some interesting anecdotes here. It's obviously like a long three-year story, but um, the highlights are when my brother Alex and I were in school, we heard this uh, radio advertisement for this startup competition called Mass Challenge. When I was about to graduate and we were going to go work on it full-time, um, our startup. So we decided to enter this startup competition. It was the first year that they did it. Uh, it was based out of Boston and we got in. and Every Friday, they would have local founders come in and talk to the startup founders inside of the accelerator. And one of them that came in was Dharmesh Shah, the co-founder and CTO of HubSpot. And I had just read his book um, like a couple months earlier, which I think actually inspired that whole like webinar video series to reach out to the rental stores. And so like I was a huge, uh, for lack of a better word, fanboy of his. So when he came in to Mass Challenge... I was actually waiting for the elevator and I hear like, hold the, hold the elevator door. Uh, and you know, I like open it up and look like, look who walks in, but Dharmesh Shah. So at this point you think that'd be like the perfect time to give an elevator pitch to a potential angel investor. But like, I couldn't even muster the confidence to do that. <laughs> so I kind of just looked at him and said like, good luck with your talk. And then he just looked up at me and said, okay, thanks. And then like, that was it. So I thought I blew my opportunity. <laughs> um, so anyways, then he did his talk. And uh, because I was such a fan of his book, I had it in my, in my cubicle on the floor. So I went and got it and had him autograph it. And we got the talking a little bit. So that was my second chance. And then that following night, I went home and I was doing a lot of blogging about like startups and my lessons learned at the time. And I wrote a blog post called like 14 Lessons from Dharmesh Shah or something like that and published it. And it went viral, like at the time, which on Twitter was like 200 retweets or something like that. Uh, and Dharmesh actually like commented on it. And then like we became friendly from there. So he was actually, we, we raised funding like a few months later for Rentabilities. And he was actually our first angel investor. And so we got to know him more over the three years that we worked on Rentabilities. And when we ultimately decided that we were going to sell it because we didn't want to really work on it anymore... Um, like we were pretty tired at that point. 
Darmesh was like, you should come work at HubSpot. I think that would be great. We have a perfect project for you too. What do you think led to you guys wanting to sell your business and, and being tired of working on it? Because most startups you know, don't succeed, but they all fail for different reasons. What was sort of the biggest challenge with rentabilities? Um, I mean, the biggest challenge and like, this is kind of trite, but you're underfunded for the scope of the project that we tried to take on. The company started off really well. We had 20 customers. They were all paying us like a couple thousand dollars a year. Um, It was an inventory management system that let you take orders online. We probably could have scaled that up to like a couple hundred businesses and, you know, like actually had recurring revenue. Um, that could sustain us and hire people and grow over time. But along the way, we decided to build a B2C two-sided marketplace where we took all of those store owners and hooked them up into like a centralized marketplace to let consumers find whatever they needed to rent and book it online and compare prices from all the local merchants. And the tough thing about two-sided marketplaces is you're really building two businesses at the same exact time. Yeah, You're building the side for the business owners. Um, So that's like a whole SaaS offering for the most part. And then you're also building the demand for the consumers and like have to build all the tools for that type of stuff too. And like at our largest, we were four people. So it was just like really, really challenging. And we worked our tails off and everything we tried just, you know, we got traction. We did really well from like generating a demand and we figured out how to get merchants to like actually use our system. But our biggest issue was we just kept getting disintermediated on the actual transactions where maybe the consumer would do the first transaction through us. But then the following year, when they needed to rent another bounce house, they would forget that they rented it from rentabilities and Uh. just rent it from the store that they knew they rented from down the street. Or the merchants would like try to get the consumer's phone number and just call them directly so they didn't have to pay us a transaction fee. So it's just like death by a thousand cuts. And, you know, after three and a half years of, really sprinting on something nonstop and running low on the funding that you raised too. Uh, you just like get kind of tired and burned out. And we just decided like, eh, maybe, maybe we let this one go and try to get some of our investors money back instead of just like, you know, riding the rocket ship into the ground. How do you recover psychologically from pouring your heart and soul into your baby for three years and not having it work out the way that you want to? I mean, how do you start another company after going through that experience once? Um, The first time, I would say I didn't recover well. Um, It took a long time. You know, it it just was like, I I guess in hindsight, I should have taken like more time between the startup and then like, going on to my next really intense project, which was working at HubSpot on this like new startup inside their company. So I didn't really give myself any time to recover, um, which was dumb in hindsight. Now though, like I, I realized that starting a business uh, for the long term is not a sprint. It's not, okay, I'm going to do this for two years and then I'm going to sell it and everyone's going to make, wait, make out great. Like to build something of substance really takes like five to seven years so now with Tetra, I'm, uh, I've learned not to sprint and I've learned to give myself the time to maintain my health and keep my relationships with my family and my fiance and my friends going and really disassociate my own sense of self-worth and my identity from my startup and have other things going on outside of my life, which 
in the long run makes it much easier to run the marathon instead of, you know, the only thing you think about is your startup. And so, yeah, like diet, exercise and things outside of your company, I say, would say are important. It's funny because you, we all hear this before we start companies and businesses. Hey, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's going to take a long time. We're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. And then when we do it, at least for the first time, we sprint anyway. It's very hard to internalize that lesson until you've actually been there and you've sort of put all your effort and energy into this thing and gone as fast as you could and burned yourself out and realized that that didn't really help you in the long run. For sure. And I, I think for, for rentabilities, it never, not until the very like end, did it ever feel really hard. And I think the reason why is because even though, like, I'll be honest, like that problem space was not necessarily like the most near and dear thing to my heart. Like I liked helping the small business merchants. They reminded me of my dad. I liked helping people rent stuff. But like at the end of the day, if you were to ask me, what is the one true thing that you like care the most about? Like helping people rent stuff probably wasn't it. <laughs> and like, I didn't even own a house and I like, I, I did I never rented stuff personally. And so it's like working on rentabilities though, I was learning so much about startups and coding and business and meeting all these people that's like that really made it great with tetra now what's much more important to me is solving the problem that we work on which is helping people build high performance teams so that the people that they hire actually enjoy their work and like their life so you spend eight hours a day of your working uh eight hours of your day working literally one third of your life and people should actually enjoy that so now that like i know a lot more about startups and I have a network and I actually don't code that much anymore. Really like the solving the problem space that I work on is the thing that sustains me over the long haul. So let's talk about Tetra. You end up selling your other business to HubSpot. You're working at HubSpot with one of your childhood friends. What leads you to, to quit that job and, and go on to form another startup or sort of the, the early days of Tetra? Nelson and I thought of the idea for what is now Tetra about a year into working on the startup style project that we were working on inside of HubSpot, which was called Lead-In. And the impetus for the problem was that our team, for the first year at HubSpot, was just Nelson and I literally doing everything with like no help from anyone. Like We did all the support. We did all the coding. We did all the building. We figured out the problem space. We grew the thing. Um, and we grew this like thing from lead in from literally no idea to 7,000 small businesses using it for free, but like having it on their website um, within the first year. So then HubSpot gave us more budget internally, which they call funding. And so they literally just uh, had another engineering team that was working on a project that they wanted to sunset and push them over to our team. So lead in went from just Nelson and I working on it to six people overnight. And that was compounded by the fact that these four engineers that joined our team, they were in Dublin. So as you can imagine, like just the two people sprinting as fast as they can on a project, you develop all this institutional knowledge and then trying to unload that onto four new team members all at once who were literally across an ocean was really challenging. And at the same time, Slack was starting to blow up and we used it and we were like, man, Slack is amazing. Like this is the best chat tool we ever used. And we had used a lot of wikis and we thought like, why hasn't anyone just built a Slack quality wiki? Like documentation and asynchronous communication seem like a fundamental need for all teams. Why doesn't this exist? And why doesn't it hook up to chat, which is how we talk to our team? 
So we came up with the idea, I think it was like January, February of 2015. Uh, the original name was actually Nowl. Um, so like the word no and an owl and there was going to be an owl mascot. Um, it was a bad name. <laughs> um, and then we like sat on it for nine months, but the thing was it kept coming up for us over the course of nine months. And so then that fall, we were like, we need to go do this. Um, the project we were working on was like kind of at a point where it was like kind of past at like zero to one point and, um, where like they wanted to absorb it into the main company, which like really wasn't that appetizing to us. Um, like where we had this founder mindset. And also I was 28 at the time too, wasn't married, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have kids. And I developed all of this um, like startup knowledge working on rentabilities and also knowledge around like, how do you actually run a high performing team at HubSpot because they're a really well-run company. And so for both of us, it found, it it kind of felt like, like we need to do this right now because we don't have these responsibilities and we can really focus on this. We don't want to look back in five years when like we do have responsibilities and say we should have taken a shot on ourselves. So like that really gave us the confidence to quit our jobs that actually paid us well to then not take salaries. So one of the first things that Nelson said you guys did before you wrote a line of code, before you actually started building the product that you'd envisioned was that you spent six weeks doing customer interviews and research. So you could sort of make sure that you built the right thing. You weren't wasting your time building something that nobody wanted. When did you guys do this? Before you left HubSpot, after you quit, and what was the process like? Uh, So we did it after we left HubSpot. I was really, like we both were, but we were really cognizant to not work on Tetra at all while we were at HubSpot. Like one, it was in our contracts. So like, and this is a common thing with all businesses, not just HubSpot, which is like anything you build there or think about there belongs to the company, not you. But like in reality, I'm a type of person who's, I need to be all in on something. And so it didn't feel fair to HubSpot to be like thinking about something on the side while I still work there. So it was after we left. This was the same process that we used for lead-in too, where we didn't write any code for the first like eight, uh, eight weeks and just figured out like what are the problems that people have. And we did customer interviews, we created fake mock-ups, and then we showed them to people and got people to agree to use a product in both, both instances. And from there, they're like, we just learned so much about the problem space that we were working on. And it gave us more confidence to actually, that people would actually use the product that we were building. How did you know that was sort of the right way to go? I mean, had you done it the wrong way before with the previous company or had you just sort of been reading online and said, okay, well, you know, what we need to do is talk to people before we build anything? It's probably a mix of both reading, this is how you should do it, but also living a lot of failures over the course of my life. I've built so, so many things over the years where I got really excited about them. I built them just because I was like, oh, this is going to be amazing. Of course, it'll be amazing. I want it. Everyone else can want it too. You build it, you spend all this time, you launch it, and then no one cares. So really, it was just kind of like a, from a standpoint of, okay, I don't want to just build things for building things sake anymore. I want to build things that actually solve customers' problems. And the best way to figure that out is just to talk to customers or potential customers and really learn what their problems are to understand them. Um, And then from there, that informs what the actual solution should be. And then you can start coming up with ideas, showing those to people. And then 
by the time you're ready to build something, you should be fairly confident that uh, like people actually use it and you're not hearing anything new or learning anything new from those conversations. And the only way to learn something new is to really get something in the hands of someone. How did this process work out for Tetra? You guys spent six weeks talking to people. What happened once you actually built your product and started testing it with real customers? So we built the, once we decided to build the product, we took the mock-ups that we had shown to people and we had like maybe two dozen teams that said they would use the thing. And we built an MVP, a minimum viable product uh, on top of WordPress uh, in about like six or eight weeks or something like that. And it kind of was like an internal blog of sorts, but it was the exact thing that we mocked up and showed people and they said they would use. So we built it, we gave it to them and lo and behold, no one used it. So the first thing we did from there was like, one, don't freak out. The thoughts start going through your head of like, oh man, like, should we really have quit our job? Was this a huge mistake? But then from there, we, you know, reached out to everyone and we said like, why aren't you using this thing that you said you would use? And the answer we got back over and over again was, oh, yeah, I've been meaning to use that, but I just keep forgetting. And we were like, oh, okay, that's a problem because you can't use something if you don't remember to actually use it or that it even exists, right? So from there, we kind of were like, okay, what can we do to get into people's existing workflows? And fortuitously... Slack launched their platform around this same exact time where they opened up the Slack interface to actually like have integrations in it. And so we were like, oh, this is interesting. And we know like there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of teams using Slack. Um, we know like it's really taken hold in a lot of workplaces. So we went back to those teams and we said, oh, what if we took the thing we had and hooked it up into Slack uh, in this way, this way, and this way? And everyone their reaction was completely different. They're like, Oh really that like, you could do that. Like, is it ready? I want to use it right now. I'll pay you for it. So that was a much different reaction. So then we were like, okay, well we can keep working on this thing. Like the MVP that we built that doesn't seem to be working, or we can try something new with this new data point that we learned. So we made the decision to scrap the entire project that we've been working on for like three months and self-funding and build a new version uh, on top of the Slack platform, where we actually just rebuilt a new interface and use the Slack API as our database and our backend. Like we literally didn't even store any of the data. It just was all on Slack's platform. We did that in two weeks over the holidays. And then we launched that in January of 2016. And we had like 200 companies sign up in the first 48 hours. Wow. Um, these were like big companies like the Texas Rangers and Walmart. And like it was, it was crazy. Wow. So then from there, we were like, okay, this is definitely a thing that people want. And we kept talking to people and learning like, what are you, why are you even signing up for this thing? What are you trying to do? And the problems were exactly the same that they described to us. But because we were hooking into the space where their team hung out all day, which was inside of Slack, people would actually remember to use it. So that was like the missing key. We had a good problem that we were trying to solve. We had a good solution, which was like documentation, actually writing things down. But we had to hook into people's existing habit loops to get them to actually build the habit of using our tool to solve their problem. So then we just like went all in on Slack from there. There's so much good stuff there that I really want to dive into. To begin with, you guys spent six weeks talking to customers, trying to figure out what problems they had. And then you guys built this product that they weren't really engaging with, that they didn't really even remember to use. Do you think that 
you could have discovered this through your prior questioning if you'd asked better questions? Or do you think this is something that you just had to sort of learn about on the fly once it happened? Uh, it's probably more of the latter. I think it's, I think when, I think it's really hard to get honest answers out of people, especially if you're asking like your friends and family, but even strangers, if you ask someone, would you use this? Chances are they're going to say, yes, I would, because they're talking to another human who they know is pouring their heart and soul into working on this new venture. And they're really excited about it. And they don't want to like squash your dream as the entrepreneur. So they'll aspirationally tell you that they'll use something. And like, if you built it, they'll use it. But then when you actually build it and deliver it to them, they don't, right? Because it's not actually like a hair on fire problem that they need to solve. So it's, it's a tough balance. And like, to be honest, I don't have a perfect answer for it, but I like the general flow or I prefer the general flow as a maker of talking to people at first to kind of like gain insights instead of just building something um, from the get-go, but talking to potential customers to gain insights, learning what their problems are, and then building an MVP as fast as possible and getting in their hands. And ideally, you would, if you're especially a SaaS company, you would get the customer to pay for it before you've even like touched a line of code and built uh, build the thing and like get their credit card from them. Cause that really signifies like, this is a problem that they really have and they're trying to solve. And they show that by like actually giving you money to do it. I think, you know, reaching the point where you guys have done all this research, you guys have spent weeks building something and people aren't using it could be discouraging for a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people would just give up and quit right then, or maybe completely pivot into a totally different business. How did you guys decide to double down on Slack and focus on that? And what kept you going despite sort of the bad news of what you had built and the research you had done wasn't good enough? Great question. I'm a big believer in that a founder's number one superpower is managing your own psychology. Uh, And what I mean by that is when the lows get really low, you're able to pull yourself out from like underneath those and not give up but also not being fueled by high highs too is the only way that like only thing that motivates you to do your work. Right. So you have to really get good at managing your day-to-day psychology and having discipline of, okay, I'm just going to keep working on this thing and keep trying to make progress every single day, knowing that over time, the progress will compound and eventually result in something that's um, valuable. Right. But the other thing too uh, was, we were really and like I, I, I'm like I like to be really transparent, uh, and so I'll be transparent that we had made some money off of the HubSpot IPO from working there too. So if nothing else, that was a safety net that I had, where if we completely screwed up and nothing worked, I knew I had some cash runway where I could take time to find another job that I really liked and didn't just like have to take on a ton of credit card debt or jump into something that I didn't want to do. And that's a really fortunate position that both Nelson and I were in um, and like took off a lot of the pressure as well. So that helped us maintain focus. Uh, We just made sure we were disciplined. I think having a co-founder also keeps you accountable too, which I would recommend to anyone. And then from there was the fact that the problem that we were trying to solve was really born out of our own need. And we knew that it was a fundamental problem that almost all groups of humans have working together, which is like, how do you keep everyone aligned and get people on the team ramped up quickly? 
So we knew there was something there. And we, from our own experience, we knew that the existing solutions weren't that good. We just didn't know exactly what the exact right way to solve it was. This is a pretty crowded space that you guys are in. I mean, the problem that you're trying to solve, like you said, there are existing solutions. And for a lot of reasons, they're not that good. Why do you think that's the case? And what gave you the confidence to sort of enter this market where you're really going up against tools created by companies like Google, created by companies like Atlassian that have been around for a very long time? We knew this was a crowded space going into it. And we thought that was a good thing. And the reason why we thought it was a good thing was that there was already companies spending millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on solutions that they didn't love. That to us signified that there was an opportunity where as product founders, we could go in and carve out our own part of the space for ourselves based off of a really simple, easy to use product that integrated with all of your existing tools. And we would get all the people who cared about design and product and usability. And, you know, anyone who wants to use super customizable product that lets you do anything, they can use Confluence. Anyone who doesn't care enough about the problem of having a high performance team, just kind of like wants to cobble things together, they can use Google Docs. But there is a subset of people, and it's probably a pretty large one, that want a centralized repository for all their team's knowledge that's easy to use so that they don't have to like explain how to use the product to everyone on their team and people can just pick it up and it kind of just permeates their organization. That's, you know, it's scary going into a space where you know there's a lot of competition and 800 pound gorillas, but it also means that there's an opportunity there too. So now you guys are at the point where it's just you and Nelson. You've gone through this iterative process of talking to people, building your product, listening to their feedback, saying why it's not working, updating your product now to work with Slack and you launch and you say you have 200 customers, even famous customers like the Texas Rangers who are paying to use your product. What was that process of launching like and why was it such a success? Well, I'm going to back up there. Uh, and they were not customers. They were just people trying out the product to see what it was all about, which is a big difference. right? Like No one was paying us anything for this. They were just hooking it up to their Slack account. The thing that we validated was people would give us access to one of their company's most private tools, which is their chat tool that has all of their internal chat logs. They gave us like 100% access to try out this prototype, which meant to us, it was a huge problem that we were solving where they were willing to give up that privacy to solve this problem. So from there, we realized, okay, we need to actually own the content that's inside of the system and not have it be hosted on Slack's platform. So we rebuilt, uh, we threw out our version two uh, and started building version three. Um, so this is like three versions in six months where we started building our own version on our own platform, hosting all the data that did the same things, but was a little bit more robust, also hooked up to Slack as well. At that point, it was Nelson, myself, and another contractor that we had who was an engineer. And the three of us just hammered out this version as fast as possible, which took about three months. So at the same time we were building version three, I was also basically doing full-time sales as well. And I was taking all of these companies that were signing up for our Slack version, because we were listed in the Slack store, and talking to them all and pre-selling them on this new version we had launching in May. And I actually took people's credit cards over the phone to validate that they cared enough about solving this problem that they would pay us. And that was such a good filter to figure out like, okay, is this new version that we're launching that's hooked up to Slack? Is that valuable enough 
that people will pay us for it uh, and basically signal that they'll use it in the future? And the answer to that was yes, because we got like 20 prepaid signups while we were also building uh, the third version. One of the most desirable things that you can reach in sort of the startup universe is what's called product market fit. And that is being in a good market with a product that also satisfies the customers in that market. Would you say that at that point, Tetra had product market fit? Personally, I don't think it's product market fit as this like Boolean milestone where once you get it, then you're in the promised land. Product market fit is a moving target over time where at the time, yeah, we probably had product market fit because there's literally no other tool that did what we did that connected to Slack. So there was no other option, but like we didn't necessarily have product market fit of we were solving the problem that people had well, because we were just missing so much functionality that people needed in a good knowledge sharing system. Over time, I would say like, yes, we got to product market fit, but then inevitably, you know, over the, like the six months or nine months or so from when we first started building the Slack version, other companies started raising funding and popping up doing the same exact thing that we did. And that kind of raised the bar for what product market fit actually was. So we've been constantly building over the last two years or so, um, two and a half years, trying to maintain our product market fit and get to the next point of product market fit. You know, and I think it's just going to be a never ending process to get to that uh, level. I think that's one of the things that a lot of founders struggle with, which is how much should you be building? How do you actually solve your customers' problems in a way that other solutions don't? How do you decide sort of where the where to draw the line between we should build another feature if we really want to land this particular customer, or you know, we should change our value proposition and sort of go into a different direction and pivot? I know like right now you guys on your website don't say very much about Slack, but in the beginning days you guys were sort of dependent on Slack. So I guess what I'm asking is, you know, how do you Think about where to go next with your product. In the early days of Tetra, deciding to integrate and build on Slack was the best thing that we did. And the reason why is that we were one of the very first Slack apps in the Slack app directory. We were probably like in the first 50. And so what that did was it opened up an acquisition channel for us to get new customers or new potential customers to our site without really any work from us whatsoever. So the nice thing was that gave us a new cohort of potential customers to talk to every week that had fresh eyes and fresh insights that we could test our assumptions um, against and like validate new mockups in the new product and see if they would buy the product. So the learning loop at that point was super, super fast. And really that was because we had all these new customers coming in from the Slack app directory that we didn't have to really do much at all to get to come to us. And they were highly qualified. And so we talked to them and learned a ton. And then we would take all that learning and go build that into the product and then repeat that over and over again. I think it's really hard for founders when you don't have that sustainable acquisition channel set up and you have to go out and you know do outbound email and calls and meetings to acquire new people. Because that just takes up so much time and you don't have enough time to code and do the acquisition at the same time. So, I mean, if I was to start over again, that would be one of the things that I would try to figure out as fast as possible, which is what is a sustainable acquisition channel that I can set up for myself where I don't have to spend money on it. So it's probably like organic for the most part or a directory listing on another platform 
where it drives new demand to me over and over again. So I don't have to keep going on trying to find new customers in the early days. Yeah. So let's dive into this a little bit because Nelson talked about this and your Andy Hackers written interview last year that there really is more than just product market fit. There's also these other dimensions that you really need to be looking at. So there's like how well does your product fit into any particular channels, right? Can you actually get what you're building in front of the right customers at the right time for the right price? And there's also, you know, your sort of pricing model. How do you make sure that your pricing model that you choose is something that's going to allow you to target the right channels? So if what you need to do is reach customers through advertising, but you're not charging enough money to really afford ads, then of course your business is not going to work. How have you guys thought about these other channels? Have you tried anything else besides Slack? And how crucial have finding the right channels and getting the right processing model been to the success of Tetra so far? The framework that Nelson talked about in the Indie Hackers post is called Product Market Channel Model Fit, summed up as the four fits. It's a concept we learned from the VP of Growth when we were at HubSpot. His name is Brian Balfour. His blog is actually coelevate.com. And if you just Google four fits Brian Balfour, you'll be able to find that post. I highly recommend all founders read that. It was really transformational when we saw that as like, oh, right, this is why startups are really hard when you're thinking about not just product and not just the product in the market, but also how do you reach those people and how do you sell to them? So for us, thinking about product market channel model fit, I would say we messed it up for the first year and a half, two years, and we're just coming around to fixing it and it's still a work in progress. And what I mean by that is for the first year or so from when we actually had the Slack version, version three of Tetra working and out in the world, we were doing an outbound, uh, sorry, an inside sales approach, meaning we would have a salesperson. It started off as me. And then we hired a salesperson, give a demo to the prospect and then get them to try to buy the product. And the reason why that didn't work well was we charged like initially $5 per user so we would like spend all this time doing all these demos. And then at the end of the call, the prospect would say, okay, yeah, I want to buy it. I'm ready to go. And we'd be like, great, awesome. Like how many teammates do you want to buy for? Like your company's a hundred people. And the prospect would say like, oh, well, we're just going to start with three seats. Like, so it's $15 a month, right? And the economics of having a salesperson sell $15, $15 a month subscriptions just doesn't work out at all. So from there, we kept raising our pricing to try to support an inside sales team. But the, pro- the two problems that we ran into were, one, the product is really simple and actually didn't really require a demo to learn how to use it. And in fact, the people who got the most value out of the product, which were startup founders and engineers, don't want to talk to a salesperson. They just want to get into the product and try it out, and poke around and see if it does what they needed to do. So we were trying to do inside sales and no one wanted to talk to us. The most qualified people didn't want to talk to us. And then also because we kept raising our prices to support an inside sales model, we actually priced ourselves out of the range of the people who would want to buy it. So we eventually moved away from inside sales and are now using a freemium model where people try out the product first and we don't talk to them um, from a sales perspective. They just use it and see if they like it. And then if they do and the, the product solves their problem, they just buy it. So the model that we use, which is freemium and the people that we sell to, which are startup founders and engineering teams most commonly, that dictates what channels will actually work for us on how we reach those people. 
So startup founders are like always reading, they're always learning, they're listening to podcasts like this one. So like content has actually been a really big key for us where we've put out a lot of content around how to build high performance teams, why you need a wiki in your company, all that type of stuff. Um, And that's been performing well. And then also integrations work well for us too, because founders and engineers are really concerned about productivity and efficiency. And so having all of your tools integrated in one makes really matters to them. And so those integrations get us listed in other platform directories, which then drive more qualified leads to Tetra. So those have been like our number one and two acquisition channels so far. We've tried many others and they haven't really worked. So right now it's just all about doing more content and scaling that up where six months from now, we'll probably see those rewards. Another thing you guys have done throughout the course of your company is actually hire people. I mean, it's no longer just you and Nelson. You've brought people onto the team as you've raised money and made more money from your customers. What has that process been like? And how did you sort of learn how to make good hires over time? So we've hired, um, we're, our team right now is uh, six people, soon to be seven. Our most successful hires are people who I'll say have a lot of potential energy meaning they have the knowledge that they need to do a job. And for whatever reason, they haven't been given the opportunity to do that job yet. As a founder, especially a founder without unlimited cash and you know, like $30 million in funding from VCs, you have to get really good at arbitraging talent. What I mean by that is you have to see the potential in people and then give them a shot to do the job that they haven't necessarily been given the opportunity to do yet. That can be really hard because there's a lot of learning that they have to do. And so what I find works well is just like over communicating and being patient with people and giving them the context that they need to make good decisions and do great work. And for us, that means being really, really transparent around pretty much everything at Tetra. And I mean like almost everything, including how much money is in the bank account? What's our burn rate? How many months of runway do we have left? And like we even recently decided to make salary data transparent too, internally at least. And what that has done for me is allow me to create a kind of collective consciousness with everyone else on the team so that when they're making a decision, they have all the same exact facts that I have as the founder, which makes for better decisions. And really, like at the end of the day, if you want people to make decisions and do something the way you would, they need to have access to the same knowledge and information that you have as a founder. And the only way to do that is to be transparent and centralize it in one place and make it accessible for everyone. Let's talk about about learning. Let's talk about sort of your process for making decisions. There's kind of this balance you have to strike as a founder between learning on the job and learning before you really get to a problem. How have you and Nelson navigated learning and figuring out what decisions you need to make? Do you have mentors that you rely on? Are you guys looking at other companies as examples? Or are you just sort of doing trial and error and learning lessons as you go? Um, It's a bit of all of those. So we have a couple dozen investors, which we're really fortunate to have. And they're all great. Most of them are former operators themselves. Um, A lot of them are from HubSpot. And they're able to help us with kind of one-off questions we have about any specific thing. To be fair, they're all really busy too. And most of them are running their own companies as well. So we try not to bother them too much. 
a lot of the learning that I do is just from other sources. So like books or podcasts or blog posts. Like I love to read. We actually have a book club at Tetra um, where we all read a book together. But like really the most, the interesting thing about books specifically are when you, when you read someone's book, especially a business book, you're taking their most distilled cohesive thoughts and loading them into your brain. And I feel like all these founders, and I used to do this myself, try to spend all of this energy getting meetings with people and like, so that they can learn from them. And really, if they just read their book, they'd probably learn way more from them. So like, I'm a big advocate for reading books constantly, especially business books. And then also just really what's helpful is talking to other founders as well. Like I have a lot of friends who run early stage startups or friends who are a little bit further ahead than us. And that's super helpful too, because one, it's fresh in their mind, like all the struggles that they went through and how they solved them. Whereas someone who's like, you know, running a $10 billion company with 3000 employees doesn't remember what it was like to have three employees and no resources. So someone who's like a little bit further ahead than you are the best mentors. And the two, it kind of acts as like founder therapy slash a sanity check too, where it's like, oh, okay, good. Everyone else's startup is on fire too. It's not just us, uh, which is like, you know, kind of validating as well. How do you get people to agree to be mentors and to be sort of coaches for you? Do you just send cold emails? Do you meet people at conferences? So we're, we're really fortunate with Tetra where we've, like I've been in the startup game for, I don't know, almost eight years now. So I've built up a network of people over time, which I'm really lucky to have done. Um, thinking back to when I was younger, when I was 20, which I know is like where like that type of level is where most people are starting from. The way that I built up my network um, in the beginning was one, we joined that accelerator mass challenge. You know, we had to apply to it, um, but we got in and that was hugely helpful for like rapidly expanding our network. And there's a lot of other ones as well, like Techstars or Y Combinator, if you can get in. Um, and those are really, really helpful for meeting like-minded people who care about this type of stuff. And then from there, um, it was just kind of like going to events and meeting people and then doing the work to keep in touch with people over time and making sure that once I had someone's attention, uh, I didn't just like let that relationship fizzle. So that might mean like sending them a progress update with like how the company was going or asking them a question or, you know, just like sending them a thoughtful email. Like, Hey, I read this. I thought you might find it interesting. And over time, like that helped build up my network of people that I could rely on. Now we actually have like official advisors. Um, so like Nelson and I, we work with an advisor. Um, his name is Patrick Campbell. He runs a company called ProfitWell here in Boston. Um, and he's one of those people who's slightly, well, he's, a bit further along than us, but like he really understands, he really understands what it's like to grow a company and he's, he's bootstrapped his company too. So he understands the resource constraints, um, the resource constraints that we have. And he's hugely helpful. Um, and we just got to know him by going to events that he was hosting and then just like hanging out with him over time. And then we asked him to be an advisor and he's also a Tetra customer too. So that helps. And then we also, we're big proponents of mentorship here at Tetra too, um, you know, and sharing knowledge. So we actually give a grant to all of our employees as well um, in our, our management team to go out and find their own mentors as well. 
so that like people want to invest in them as well. Because as the founders, like you have access to these types of people, especially your investors. But like if you're a manager, you might not. So we want everyone to be leveling up here, and we try to make that possible. You mentioned earlier that one of the most important things that you can do as a founder is to manage your own psychology, and I totally agree. I think being a founder mostly comes down to a lot of decision-making and depending on where your head's at, you are more or less likely to make the right decisions. What are some of the tricks and some of the things that you do to manage your psychology as a founder and make sure that you can do your best job? So I'm still learning new tricks and new techniques and all that type of stuff every day. One thing that I've been doing lately is I read this um, book. uh, It's called the happiness advantage. I think it is. Um, But anyways, it's based off of like psychological science where people who think about positive things actually rewire their brain to be more positive. And as a founder, when you're constantly getting knocked down every single day, positivity is really powerful. And it's, it's simple things like thinking about three good things that happened during that day. And they don't even necessarily have to be related to your company. It might be like, I got to stand out in the sunshine for 15 minutes uh, and it was warm out in October in Boston. And that's great, you know, Um, but by forcing yourself to think about those positive things and be thankful for what you have, to me, at least it gives me kind of like a sanity check on like, oh, things aren't as bad as they might seem. Like, Yeah. yeah, we did have that customer churn but it's okay. Like we'll get more customers in two weeks and it's not a big deal. Um, So like that's been really helpful for me and like useful. What do you think is one of the more surprising things you've encountered about making your business work and being a successful founder in the last few years? For me as a B2B SaaS founder, the most surprising thing is how willing your customers are to pay you when you just explain to them the reason for why you're charging them. And what I mean by that is like we've increased our prices a few times. We've in like you know, we've given people discounts and then later on we're like, hey, we don't want to give you the discount anymore. And every time uh we do that, it feels scary to go to someone and say, Hey, you're gonna have to pay us more. But every time we've explained to them, hey, we're increasing your price, the tool is much more valuable now. We've built way more functionality into it. And also over the long haul, we need to charge money so that we don't go out of business or we don't feel obligated to sell the company right away. And like, this will give you a long-term tool that you can have access to. Once you explain that, everyone's basically just like, okay, cool, sounds good. And they understand and they're willing to pay you. And so for me, the thing that's surprising is uh, like when you give people that context about how hard you're working and why the tool costs what it is, they're willing to pay you because they want to support you. Whereas it's like, really scary to try to ask people to give you more money and you shouldn't be scared. You should just do it because the worst thing they're going to say is no. Yeah. It's counterintuitive to how much more excited often people will be to pay for a product that's more expensive because it's better than they are to pay for a product that's, you know, super cheap $5 a month because usually that means, you know, it correlates with their product not being all that useful, not having that many features, not being really ready or as valuable as a more expensive product. For sure. And for us as a business that wants to be independent over the long term and not subsidizing their company over like off of venture capital, it's really important to charge. And I think now there's people are used, people are scared of products shutting down randomly. You know, like Google shuts down a product like once every month that 
millions of people use, right? So people actually want to pay you to keep your product up so that you can have a livelihood to keep working on it and keep delivering uh, value to them and solving their problems. On that note, you guys have raised money. You've, at the same time, really focused on getting adequate rest and making sure you run the company the way that you want to. And people often look at those as sort of opposites. People look at you know raising money from investors as locking you into a certain path and having to grow your company a certain way. How do you deal with this push and pull? Have you found that that's the case, that you're not able to run your company the way that you want because you have investors? I think of money, like funding, as a tool. And it's, how are you going to use the tool? And I feel like there's kind of this dichotomy that exists right now, or a spectrum, which is on one end of the spectrum, you have the never raise money, investors are terrible, bootstrap. Um, which is like the left side. And then on the other end, the right side, you have raise as much money as you, as is possible and build a unicorn or bust type of thing. I think that there's room in the middle for raise some money to get going, building SaaS uh, software um, just takes a long time. You know, like it takes a long time to get the functionality and figure out what the problems that people are going to pay for. But once you figure it out and you also figure out your acquisition channels too, so you can grow, it's hugely valuable because it's recurring revenue. And so raising a little bit of money um, or raising some money in the beginning takes some of the pressure off you as founders where you feel like you're going to go out of business every you know month. And it's really hard to concentrate when you're constantly worried about your livelihood. So I kind of think of it as like uh, a flywheel. We raised a little bit of, we raised some money to get the flywheel going. And then we wanted to charge revenue to make the flywheel keep going and um, get rid of friction so that we could be sustainable over the long haul. And our goal in the long term is to build a big business. And, you know, it just takes patience, but we needed some capital to get going. This is your second business. You guys are generating hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue from customers. You had a previous business, um, you were experienced at fundraising, at sort of pivoting into the right product from the wrong product. Out of all your experiences and the things that you've been through, what would your advice be for somebody who's maybe just getting started or considering starting their very first business? What do they absolutely need to know? I think it's really important to pick a problem that you are truly passionate about over a long period of time. And what I mean by that is it's really it's really easy now to get a new product going, Um, you know, like cloud infrastructure exists, Stripe exists to take payments. There's all this open source. You can cobble something together. And so often people will get going on something because it's easy and it's fun and you're learning a ton in the beginning. And then when it gets hard, inevitably like six to 12 months in, they don't have enough grit and persistence to want to stick with it. But if you're working on a problem that you truly care about, it makes it much easier to stick with the difficulties that you'll inevitably run in with. And for me, I've been thinking about internal uh, communication and cooperation for a really long time because I ran into it on my first company, Rentability. It's like, like I literally just saw a tweet the other day from myself eight years ago in my time hop asking if anyone knew of a good internal wiki that would be good for a startup. I've been thinking about this for a really long time and the the problem space is near and dear to my heart, which makes it much easier for me to slog it out and get through all the hard times. 
Um, so the advice that I give or like one piece of advice, there's, you know, dozens and dozens, but one piece of advice that I like to give that's counterintuitive is when you think of a new problem, try to talk yourself out of it. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, don't just start working on it, write it down, write down your thoughts and then try to move on. And if it keeps coming up over and over again, over the course of a few months, it means it's one, probably a problem that you care enough about to solve. And two, a problem that's coming up consistently for customers that's prompting you to like keep thinking about this. That's great advice. Just I think another way to sort of manage your own psychology um, almost indirectly by making sure that the future you is going to still want to work on what you're working on today. Thanks so much, Andy, for coming on the show and, and giving us your advice and sharing your story. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about what you're up to at Tetra and what's going on in your personal life as well? For sure. Um, so uh, start with personal life. I'm basically Andy. I'm Andy G. Cook on basically every single social network. Uh, stubbed that one out uh, early on. So if you want to reach me on Twitter, it's just at Andy G. Cook. Um, my DMs are open if you have any questions. Uh, or you can email me directly at Andy dot, uh, Andy at Tetra dot co, And that's T-E-T-T-R-A dot C-O. Uh, and then if you want to learn more about Tetra, just go on our site, uh, same domain. And then I'll give a plug to um, a series that we actually published uh, over the last few months about our journey going from literally almost running out of funding to profitability over the course of a year. It's just a really transparent look over all the difficulties and struggles that we went through and literally how we almost failed. And it's on our blog if you want to check it out. And the reason why we wrote it is because I feel like when people... When people hear about companies, it's always, oh, we're killing it. And no one actually knows that like your company's on fire internally. So we wanted to give people an inside look about like, hey, we were failing and we came out of the nosedive and here's what that looked like so that other people would kind of hopefully find that valuable. Yeah, that sounds exactly like what people need to read. Thanks again, Andy, for coming on the show. Thanks a lot, Cortland. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.